Hardback. Hardback. So, it's his hardback. Um, so, yeah, it took me a lot to write this. About six or seven years ago, my agent asked me to... Well, she suggested that I write my autobiography, and I said, no, like, I'm too young. Isn't that the kind of book you write just before you die? And uh, she said, no, Benjamin, you've got such interesting stories. You know, people deserve to, you know, hear your life story. And I just thought, you know, nobody's going to be interested in me. So eventually she convinced me, and I said, I'll write my autobiography on a few conditions. One condition was that she doesn't go and look for the publisher. So I don't have a contract, and I don't have a deadline. Because I didn't want to feel rushed I only want to write one autobiography, you know? And so I want it to be the one. And I also wanted it to be part, the biography, if you like, of my mother. Because I don't think there's many stories told about Caribbean women coming over from the Caribbean in the early 50s, late 40s, early 50s. And so um, I spent about six or seven years writing the book. And then a couple of weeks ago... um, it was published. And it just happened to be published like a week after my 60th birthday. You know, it's a happy birthday to me. <laughs> um, um, that's just co- coincidence. Somebody suggested on a radio program the other day that it was a marketing thing. You know what I mean? As if I'd arranged for the publication or, or you know, my birth to coincide <laughs> with the writing of my autobiography. So, um... <clears throat> So what I'm going to do tonight is a little bit different from what I normally do, which is normally come on, do some poems, and and go home. Um, This is going to be slightly different, because what I'm going to do, I'm going to do some of my older poems and talk about what was going on when I wrote them, what was the thinking behind the poems. And um, I'm going to do that for about an hour or so, and for another half an hour, and, and this is flexible, um, I may take some questions from the audience because, um, because you just look so pretty and I want to talk to you. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's a literary event, so, you know, we, we should do this. We should have this kind of communication between each other. Um, I should just tell you that if the time comes for questions and answers and any of you ask me a question and I reply and you don't quite understand the answer, that's cool. It's not you. It's me. I'm deep. (laughs) I'm a deep poet, you see. Um, So that's what we're going to do. And then, I mean, you've been told it before, I'm going to rush to the back and I'm going to sign autographs and meet you. And then maybe one of you will give me a bed tonight. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So that's it. Um, Right, um, so I've got to talk about me a little bit. I was born in Birmingham. Anybody here from Birmingham? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Let's do that again. Anybody here from Birmingham? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Am I related to you? <laughs> um, right, anybody here from London? Yes. Fuck off home. <laughs> huh? Huh? You come here, you take people's jobs, you're sitting in a seat, that seat could be for a local person. People from London are all right. Some of my best friends are from London. Um, 
I was born in Birmingham. Well, I, I tell people I was born in Birmingham, but technically, that is not true. Well, let me explain. My mother came to Britain in about 1956, and she settled in Birmingham, and she was living in this house in Aston. Um, Aston is a suburb of Birmingham, made famous by the wonderful, the glorious Aston Villa. <laughs> um, and um, she was living in Aston, her and my father, and she was working for the National Health Service, right? And she was what was then called a state-registered nurse. She was very proud of her job, you know. But my mother was obsessed, like a lot of Caribbean women of that generation when they came to England, they were obsessed with getting on in England and moving up the social ladder, you know. So she thought that she would really move up the social ladder if she was to organise for me and my twin sister, I have a twin sister, not to be born in Aston, but to be born in a place called Marston Green. <laughs> you know you know Marston Green? Yeah, yeah. Posh Birmingham, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's where I was born. And um, <clears throat> I was a difficult birth. I gave my mother a lot of problems. And uh, I don't know why. I was just so angry that day. I remember it really well. <laughs> um, my sister should have been born before me, but I was in such a hurry, you know what I mean? I was, let me get out there and check it out. And, um, and to be honest, I don't really remember much after being born to about the age of five. And they say, this is a kind of scientific stuff now, they say that a lot of people that claim to remember stuff when they were three and four, a lot of it is false memory anyway. A lot of it is like a little snapshot you have and then you hear stories and you kind of make up stuff and you believe it really happened, but it's a kind of false memory. I don't know. I don't remember anything. I just remember my first day at school. It's a school called St. Mavias. And my mother sent us to this school in a place called Hockley, not Aston, which was quite multicultural and multiracial. And, and multicultural then wasn't like multicultural now. It was like a few Asian people, a few black people, but lots of Irish <laughs> and Greeks, you know. I mean, that was multiculturalism back then. In fact, the house where my mother was living, if you went down the, the garden and climbed over the fence, you landed in the garden of Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah, you know what I mean? And that's multiculturalism for you. Um, <laughs> heavy metal dude. Um, so my mother didn't want us to go to a school in that area. She sent us, and this is her again trying to move up the social ladder, she sent us to an all-white school called St. Mavias. Now, I'm going to tell you, it was an all-white school, but it was the most poorest, run-down, all-white school you could ever come across, you know? Me and my sister arrived there, and my sister just looked at the place, and it looked like Dracula's castle. And my sister just started crying. And I looked at the place, and I went, shit. 
And my sister just cried and cried and cried. And I'm really embarrassed by my sister. And I said, go away, go away. And, and they, they send my sister to another classroom. And I can still hear her crying, just echoing throughout the school. And then they sent her to the other side of the playground. And she was still crying. And I'm just, you know, OK, it's an all-white school. But what? I'm still trying to blend in. You know what I mean? I just, <laughs> This kid comes up to me and says, is that your sister? I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> She's Jamaican, I'm Pakistani. <laughs> in assembly in the morning, the teacher would say, good morning, school. And then the whole school would reply, good morning, Mrs. Evans. Good morning, everyone. Have you got any teachers here? Any teachers? Come on, come out the closet. Where are you? <laughs> There's people pointing at people. This is really, this is terrible. Somebody just pointed at you, madam. Are you a teacher? <laughs> All right. Do you do that? <laughs> well, you stopped it now. Well, I'm retired. Now. Oh, you're retired. <laughs> right, you, you, you got out. Uh, any, any, any teachers still doing that? Yeah. You're still doing that? Why? <laughs> no, I, I could. It's, it's just, it just feels a bit strange when you're there. You know, good morning, everyone. Anyway, <clears throat> um, um, they used to say that in assembly at school. And, um, you know, it was, it was a really difficult time for me and my sister. Let me tell you something. I mean, at the time, Cassius Clay, as he was called then, Muhammad Ali, was going around the world and beating people up legally, right? <laughs> and um, people were so proud of him. And especially, you know, it doesn't matter where they were, the black community all over the world were really proud of him. You didn't have to like boxing to like Muhammad Ali. It was the things that he said about human rights and, and the, his stance on the Vietnam War and all that kind of stuff. Um, so people were really proud of him. And to a certain extent, I was. But when he fought and he won, when I went to school the next day, all the kids would expect me to be able to fight like <laughs> Muhammad Ali. You know, come on, Muhammad. I can actually fight like Muhammad Ali, you know what I mean? <laughs> but not ten against one, you know, one at a time. And um, in assembly, on the first day of our, me and my sister being there, the teacher told the children that tomorrow, the next day, to celebrate the arrival of the coloured children they should bring in their favourite gollywogs. <laughs> Serious. 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 That's how they celebrated the arrival of me and my sister. I mean, the next day, me and my sister are in the playground. All these kids come up to us with, you know, gollywogs that they've drawn. Do you remember you can get little cut-out ones? Or on the jam jar and all that stuff. And, Does your dad look like that? No, my dad doesn't look like that. My dad's got dreadlocks. Um, difficult, difficult time, difficult place. One morning in school, after, you know, good morning, school, good morning, Mr. Evans, good morning, everyone, this male teacher announced that, well, let me tell you how he did it. He said, boys and girls, I have an announcement to make. We are going to have a cricket team. And all the kids went. And I have another announcement to make. We have a captain for our cricket team, little Benjamin here. 
And I'm going, no, 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 I don't do cricket. I went to him afterwards, I said, sir, I don't play cricket. I, 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 I don't like cricket. It's like really slow. And it reminds me of colonialism. <laughs> and he said, you, you can play cricket. Look at you, you're a cricketer. Look at you. He said, you are a born cricketer. And he forced me, and it's the only way, I know it's a strong word, it's the only way I can describe it. He forced me to play cricket. And I've got to tell you what the process is. I know some of you are familiar with cricket. Um, you got a good cricket team around here? I don't want to talk about it. Good. <laughs> Colonialism and all that. <clears throat> um, he explains to me that, um, that um, somebody's going to run towards me and bowl the ball and uh, my job is to protect the wickets and hit the ball with this bat and then run up there and then run back. And I've seen cricket played in the streets, as we used to do then, play football and cricket in the streets, like some kids did. And, um, but it was always with a soft ball. This ball was hard, you know. This guy is running towards me and I'm thinking, should I really be here? I'm looking at these wickets and I'm thinking... What have you done for me? Yeah? Why should I protect you? Somebody's running towards me with a hard ball, going to throw it at me. My instinct is just to run. You know? And um, anyway, I do as I'm told, and the guy bowls the ball, it bounces, and some of you may know that I'm into animal rights and I'm a vegan, and I think this is where it started. Because as the ball bounced, I saw it with my own two eyes. It killed an ant. And it bounced up, and I went to hit it. And when I went to hit it, it smashed my finger. It, it did more than smash my finger. And I, I really, I'm, I'm going to have to do something now, because I just need one person to witness this, because people think I'm exaggerating. Can, can you step up, sir? Just come and have a look at this. Go on, come up. Don't be shy. I just want you to witness that scar. Can you see that scar that goes round like that? <laughs> what? Just about. Just about? Uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah, yeah. It yeah. looks painful. It, it looks painful, he said. Let me explain, sir. Not only did the ball break my finger, but that scar there, the flesh from inside my finger shut out. I know there's doctors in the audience because I attract that kind of people, right? <laughs> so you'll understand what I mean when I talk about there's a thing called phantom limb syndrome where you lose a limb and you can still feel it. It was like that. I could feel the pain there, but I could also feel the pain over there. <laughs> and I picked up this bit of flesh and it was dangling and, and the teacher came with me to the ablutions and he just shoved it back in. <laughs> Now, I've got what my mother calls ladies' fingers, very slim fingers, but if you look at that, you can see it's out of shape. And as you said, it looked painful. It was painful at the time, but actually now I can't feel a thing because it was just flesh that shoved in there, slightly out of shape. And like I said, it's, there's nothing there. It's, it's, it's just weird. That's how bad it was. And as the teacher had my bit of flesh, shoving it back in there, running it under a cold tap, he said to me, isn't it interesting, hey, how you dark fellas have that, like, dark skin, but your blood is the same colour as ours? 
And I'm like, aren't you clever, eh? That's why my mum sent me to this school. Anyway, my mum soon realised that something was wrong. Because my sister, my sister doesn't come on stage and she doesn't talk. But she has a whole lot of other stories about what they tried to get her to do as a black girl in this school. Um, and they were, you know, her stories are just as bad and gruesome sometimes as mine. Um, but my mother realised that something was wrong. And then she sent us to another school called Deacon Avenue. And it was the complete opposite. Here the teachers are open-minded, creative. I mean, in assembly at the mornings, sometimes they'd have little Benjamin reading a poem, you know? Um, what was big then was a game called Kiss Chase. Do you play it here? <laughs> teachers, are you playing that? <laughs> uh, I've been told that teachers play it more than the kids now. The kids just are on their phones, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> Um, but anyway, there was this game called Kiss Chase, you know, you close your eyes, you count to ten or whatever it is, and then if you find a person, you get a kiss. No, not me. I would go up to a girl in the playground and I would say, tell me your name, and if I can just freestyle a little poem, can I get a kiss? <laughs> you know, so the girl would tell me her name, and then I would just freestyle a little poem, and then, yeah, mine. <laughs> uh, kiss Chase is all right, but all that running around, you know what I mean? Um... But I really loved it in the school, and it's absolutely true what they say. If you have positive, good experiences at school with good teachers, you remember it for the rest of your life. And I remember the school with so much, I have such great memories. Um, the opposite is also uh, true. If you have bad experiences, you also remember them. I, as I started performing my poetry around the world and around the country, um, I do a lot of schools. And to be honest, now, I spend a lot of time saying to schools, sorry, I can't come, because I get about 30, 40 um, invitations each week to perform at schools. And there's just too many. I mean, there's one person I've technically employed, and her job is just to reply to schools to say, you can't make it. I, I don't like ignoring letters, so I reply to them. This is a real shame. So I, I do schools when I can. They're difficult. Uh, they start so early in the morning. Um, and, but after a time, I realised that I'd performed in so many schools in Birmingham, but this school, which was so special, that I enjoyed so much, I'd never performed in. So one day, I wrote a letter to the head teacher. I wrote this letter, and I said, um, Good morning, Mrs Phillips. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. My name is Benjamin Zephaniah. I'm a revolutionary poet. You may not have heard of me, but I'm big in Ledbury. <laughs> um, and I used to go to the school, and I'd like to come into the school and talk to the kids. And since then, every now and again, um, I go in and talk to these kids. And I love it, you know, because I'm standing in the place where I used to stand when I was that tall, talking to kids and just going back in my mind of when it was me sitting there and, you know, I just love primary school kids because their minds are so open and they're so fertile and everything else. Um, and then I went to secondary school and it kind of went downhill. Um, I started hanging out with the wrong crowd, so I started uh, getting in trouble with the police and 
I was always a performance poet. I always loved performing my poetry. And, you know, academics say that I come from the oral tradition. I didn't think of it as that, you know. I just thought, I just love speaking poetry. I was dyslexic anyway, so speaking poetry was normal for me. But uh, when I got to this school, for some reason, I thought that I should, you know, try and write my poems down. But I, for some reason, I started to write them on the school walls. <laughs> and somebody told me, that's not exactly writing your poetry down, that's graffiti. And so I got in trouble for that. And then the other thing was, um, and you know, I, I, I'm always very careful when I talk about this, because I'm not one of those people that just say, back then, the teachers were racist. I think the textbooks were racist, you know. Teachers are just like human beings. Um, just like human beings? No, they are human beings. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but, you know, they had these textbooks that would say that civilization started in Europe. And at that time, right, I'm starting to listen to speeches from Malcolm X and read Marcus Garvey and uh, listen to all these reggae records that were talking about black civilizations that went back thousands of years. So I'd get up in school and I'd say, no, I don't think civilization started in Europe. You know, there was a civilization in Egypt that went back thousands of years and they had a system of drainage and they had, you know, uh, air conditioning systems. You know, they'd worked out loads of stuff and the teacher would say, shut up. And I'd go, no, I'm not going to shut up. And then I'd get in trouble. And the other thing was, I remember one day a teacher said, um, she was doing history, and she said, Christopher Columbus did this on Monday, did this on Tuesday, and on Wednesday, he discovered black people. I was like, huh? huh? I think that black people existed before Christopher Columbus discovered us, and then I'd get told off. And anyway, eventually, I got excluded from the school, right? You know what excluded means, right? I mean... I don't really like the word excluded. I think that that was thought up by a focus group, you know. I like the word expelled. You know what I mean? That sounds more organic, you know what I mean? Sounds like a bodily function, you know what I mean? <laughs> Benjamin Zephaniah, you were expelled. Because <laughs> um, no school in Birmingham would have me, and you know, all these schools had, had enough of me, and, and, this, and, and this school, they'd taken me back about three times, and they'd had enough of me, and they said, you are permanently expelled. And so I was like, yeah. And this teacher said, you, you are going to end up dead or doing a life sentence. That's what she said to me. She said, she said you, you are a born failure. And I was like, born failure? You're calling me a born failure? Well, at my primary school, the teacher said I'm a born cricketer. <laughs> and now you're saying I'm a born failure. What am I? An English cricketer? Confusion. <laughs> no, they're doing quite well. Um, and so that was it. I never went to school again. I was 13 years old when I got kicked out of school. Um, I don't want to plug the book too heavily, but the book goes on to talk about how I got in trouble with the police and all that kind of stuff. I went to another school, which was called... And I always say this to people. I don't know if anybody has been to a grammar school or a public school or anything like that. Yeah. So what? I went to an approved school. <laughs> it was approved. Yeah, you know? Um, and then there was a long struggle, but I managed to kind of turn my life around. And you know what? Look how it turned out. 
I mean, I'm at the Ledbury Poetry Festival, you know what I mean? You know, that's how good it gets. So, um, I, f I feel a poem coming on. Um, do you want to hear a poem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it's a love poem, somebody say, oh. Uh, it's a romantic poem. It's a poem about my first love. This poem is called, I love my mother and my mother loves me. I love my mother and my mother loves me. We come so far from over the sea. We heard that the streets were paved with gold. Sometimes it's hot, sometimes it's cold. I love my mother and my mother loves me. We try to live in harmony. Well, you can call her Valerie, but to me she is my mummy. She shouts at me, Daddy, so loud sometimes. She's always been a friend of mine. She's always doing the best she can. She works so hard on inner England. She's always singing some kind of song. She has big muscles and she's very, very strong. She likes pussycats and she loves cashew nuts. And she don't bother with no if and buts. I love my mother and my mother loves me. We come so far from over the sea. We heard that the streets were paved with gold. Sometimes it's hot. But most time it's cold. <laughs> I love her. And whatever we do, this is a love I know is true. My friends, I am talking to you. Me and my mother, ooh, we love you too. <laughs> now, I know I, um, I kind of encouraged it at the beginning there, but um, this is a poem I wrote, a poem I just performed, as it wrote, I created when I was about eight years old. When I was in the playground at Deacon Avenue, I created that poem then. And look at me now, I'm, I, I'm closer to 100 than I am to one. And, and I'm still performing it. And it's the kind of poem that you can perform anywhere, in a kindergarten, in a secondary school, it's a hip-hop gig, it's a reggae gig, it's a university, you know, it just works anywhere. I remember once I performed it, and Mick Jagger was in the audience. And he came to me afterwards, he came backstage, and I was like, who gave him a backstage pass? You know what I mean? <laughs> and um, he comes to me, and I can't do Mick Jagger's accent or his swagger, and he says, oh man, that poem about your mum, man, that's so cool. He said, I've been writing songs for years, and I've always wanted to write a love song to my mum, but I just don't know how to do it, man, it's so difficult. I just, I can't do it, man. And I said, Mick, Mick. The drugs are not working. <laughs> um, but I'd been performing it for years, and I realised that my mother had never heard it. So I sat her down one day and I said, Mom, listen to this. I love my mother, and my mother loves me. We come so far from over the sea. We heard that the streets were paved with gold. She said, Shut your mouth, why? And go to bed. <laughs> My mother just didn't appreciate the finer points of my poetry. You know? But things have changed now. It's really interesting how they've changed because when I perform it now, she says, huh? How much money you get for that? That's <laughs> how things have changed. It's my mum's birthday today. I just popped in and saw her. She's 84. And, um, yeah, I should be with her, but I'm with you. And I told her that we're going to send her all your love. You know, yeah. let's, do, let's do that. Um, I'm going to do a poem now which may confuse some of the younger people in the audience here yeah? um, because it goes back to a time when, when 
there was only a couple of stations on TV, and uh, there were two major television events. There's probably more, but there's two that I really remember. One of them was the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> and we've just had the Eurovision Song Contest, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. Who, who won it? You don't know? Nobody knows? Israel. Israel? Yeah. Are they in Europe? <laughs> anyway, um, so you got the Eurovision Song Contest, and that was big a long time ago. You remember when there was just two free channels, right? And the other thing that was big, and this is what confuses a lot of people, because, you know, they just don't understand this, and I'm still trying to understand it. Do you remember the Miss World contest? Yes. Wasn't that weird? <laughs> I mean, I was six, seven, eight, and I used to watch it, and I used to think, what's going on? Watching these women parade in their evening dress and their swimwear, and the judges. You know, there's always one token woman, but the rest were like old men. I got nothing against old men. I'm one myself, you know what I mean? But they tended to be old men, and they would look at these women, and they would be drooling. <laughs> <sighs> and for some reason, I just noticed that when they interviewed the women, they used to interview the women, like, what's your ambition? Like, most of the women, 80, 90% of the women, wanted to be an airline hostess. You know, I, 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 airline hostesses. I, look, I've got nothing against airline hostesses, right? Some of my best friends are airline hostesses, right? But, you know, to say that is the, the kind of peak of a woman's ambition, I was looking at my sisters and thinking, is this what you want to do? Is this what you want to be? And so I kind of created this poem in a response to the Miss World Contest. And I've got to tell you, this is a weird thing for a poet to say before performing his own poem. But I've got to tell you, this is not great poetry, right? <laughs> you know, because it's the eight-year-old me responding to this stuff. But I was really confused about it at the time. I, and it, it was such a big event, and I just thought, why is it so important? Anyway, um, it's got a great title. It's called Miss World. <laughs> Beauty is about how you behold. More than silver, more than gold. If I say I am beautiful, then beauty is accessible. Beauty is about how you greet the everyday people that you meet. You are beautiful, so I'll rejoice. Your beauty is a natural choice. My sister is a beautiful girl, but she don't want to be Miss World. Her value is not prize money, more value than a pearl. My sister is a beautiful girl, human delight. She could be out of sight, but she would rather stay and fight. Her legs are firm and strong, best for self-defense. My sister kicks like wildfire, so cause no grievance. But she won't walk the platform to upset people lost. And you can't get the number of her height, ear job bust. She don't want to go to the market to be viewed like a slave. The viewing time is over, put the judge in a grave. She don't need to go to the market, cause she's already won. Beauty contest, no contest, she don't need to run. I'm talking about people in society who judge you by your looks and then will give you a number that is written in a book. And lustful eyes from all around come to look at you and they will judge your lifetime by a quick interview. My sister is a beautiful girl but she don't want to be Miss World. Her personality cannot be rewarded by no judge or earl. My sister is a beautiful girl, she needs no contest. And you can't put her with another, judging who's the best. 
And you cannot judge my sister's heart. You cannot judge my sister's heart by looking. Just by looking and staring at her breast. When I created that poem, and I used to perform it back in the 70s and 80s, a lot of people thought it was about my sister, you know? As if, you know, my sister had been asked to go on the Miss World Contest. I said, no, no, it's about, like, all women, you know, it's about my sisters and, my, you, know, you know, how Rastafarians and even Christians do it, you know, we're all brothers and sisters. Um, but I do remember once, I was performing it in Aston University in Birmingham in front of an audience, and it was for a BBC TV program. And for some reason, I decided to dedicate it to my sister, who was in the audience. This is not my twin sister, the one that cries all the time. Uh, <laughs> this is my younger sister, Joyce. And um, Joyce is kind of shy, and she, I said, I'd like to dedicate this poem to my sister, Joyce, and Remember, right, this is a TV program, so spotlights turn on my sister. <laughs> and I say, yeah, stand up, sister. And she stands up and she looks at me and she goes. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, this is for my sister. Lights are on and everything. And I start performing the poem, My Sister is a Beautiful Girl. And as I catch her eye, she's still standing and she's going, you dick. <laughs> And I actually froze halfway through the poem. It's the first time I've ever done that. I froze and had to start the poem again. Fortunately, the program was being recorded. <laughs> and then um, after the gig, I got beat up. <laughs> um, a lot of people who know me, and um, it's a bit strange, but when I, when I get to this age, I realise, and you know, I met some people earlier who kind of m met me in a pub in Handsworth, like, 30 years ago or something, and other people who said they were on the same demonstration at me as me. I, actually, <laughs> I got here earlier, and I was walking down um, the main street, going to the health shop and everything, and I think I met half my audience. <laughs> uh, but, but, um, but people were coming to me, and they were kind of sharing memories of gigs they'd been at and stuff like that. And it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing, really. But... Um, some people, and even somebody today said, um, I've never really heard you talk much about your father. And that's because talking about my father is rather difficult. I don't really remember him that much. And maybe the times for a young boy to really remember his father, those times I weren't with my father. He started being really violent towards my mother. And... You know, when my father started to beat my mother, remember, there's, I come from a family of eight, right? There's seven other brothers and sisters. They all ran away from my father, and I ran to my father, and I would try and fight him. I mean, it was futile, but I'd have a goal because I really felt like I should protect my mother. In fact, the first time I ever ended up in a police station, it was for stabbing or trying to stab my father. My father was beating my mother, and he was on top of her on the ground. I got on top of my father. And do you remember, years ago, I don't know if you can still do it now, you could go into a newsagent and buy a penknife for sixpence. You know, and I had one of those penknives. And I'd watched a program called The Man from Uncle. And in that program, they were saying that if you cut someone in the temple, they'd die. 
So my father's on top of my mother. I'm on top of my father trying to kill him. Right? I'm trying to stab his temple. But this sixpence, this cheap knife, keeps folding back and cutting me. And I'm getting absolutely nowhere. There's a whole load of blood, but it's my blood, you know? And some neighbour calls the police. And the police come. And this is how it was back then. The police come and they said, well, you know, it's happening in your own home. This is a domestic. But you, young man, are using an offensive weapon. You're under arrest. And they arrested me. Um, after a while, they let me out when they knew the circumstances. But still, you know, Dad kind of got away with it. Um, and it's, it's kind of really difficult, this, because... You know, my father retired. Somebody, a doctor told him that he had like six months to live or something like that. And he just took his money, he just took everything and went to Barbados and retired. And he lived in Barbados for another 18 years or something, you know. And the doctors wanted to bring him back home to do experiments on him. He said, no way, I'm not going back there. He claims that just the fresh air and the fresh food and all that stuff was kind of giving him life. And I went to Barbados in a way to kind of make peace with him. And it's the best time I ever had with him because, you know, he wasn't talking about my mum anymore and he wasn't being violent and all that stuff. But I don't remember kicking a ball with him and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I don't like to badmouth him, you know. What was going on between him and my mother, I don't really know and I didn't really understand. I was too young to understand. So I try not to badmouth him. But it's a sensitive subject in my family because a lot of my brothers and sisters think... Mom deserted us, you know, and you went with mom. And, and dad was a hero because he raised seven children on his own. And I think mom was really brave because she got away from a violent relationship. And she managed to kind of, you know, make a life on her own. And she, you know, she, it was really difficult with me and her. You know, it's, like I said, it's all in the book. Sometimes we were homeless and sometimes we really struggled. And, them times she couldn't get as a black woman, she couldn't go into women's refuges and stuff like that. So, you know, I saw another side. So it's really sensitive in our family. But the thing is, I don't really remember those important years of, you know, playing with my dad and all that kind of stuff. For some reason, there was a short period in our lives when my father, he looked at me and thought, well, you are the oldest boy in the family. You are going to be the leader. And he got this box room, this small room. He put on a black curtain at the window. He put a table in the room. And on the table, there was a lamp. And there was this chair. For anybody that's been arrested lately, just think of an interrogation room. Because <laughs> it was like that. And he would sit me down and have these man-to-man -man talks with me, where he would try to pass on his wisdom to me. And one day, he sat me down and he said, Son... When you grow up, I want you to be a man. I was always a bit of a rebel, so I said, yeah, do I have a choice? <laughs> he said, son, you must understand that there are men, and there are men, and I want you to be a man. I was like, dad, this is deep, help me here. He said, son, I want you to be a macho man. And you can tell by the way I prance around the stage that I, <laughs> I failed happily. But um, I wrote this poem about the trauma I was going through at the time. And um, it's called Man to Man. 
it calls for a bit of acting. I'm not normally like this, but um, I've got to get into character, man to man. Macho man. Can't cook. Macho man. Can't soar. Macho man eats plenty red meat. At home, him is the king from the front garden to the back garden. <laughs> from the lift to the balcony, he is the supreme master, the controller. Hey, food must ready on time. Clothes must ready on time. Woman must ready on time. Oh, macho, can you go? Come, talk to me about sexuality. Come, meditate. Come, save the whale. Those bulging muscles need Tai Chi. Those drunken eyes need herb tea. Come, relax. Macho man can't cook, sew, or wash him pants. But macho man is in full control. This next poem is a poem I wrote um, when I was an angry young man. Yeah, I'm an angry old man now. But when I was an angry young man, almost every weekend, and I kind of alluded to you already, because some of you were there with me, we were on demonstration for one thing or another. There was loads of issues to do with women's rights, and there's loads of issues to do with race, and of course we had the big thing called apartheid, and Nelson Mandela in prison, and East Timor, and all this stuff going on. So... Um, Every, every week we'd be on a demonstration. And for me, personally, the thing that affected me more than everything was stop and search. I was being stopped and searched all the time. Um, I did a gig at Leicester a couple of days ago. And I was talking about when I arrived there and half the audience remembered this. There's a, a community centre, a Caribbean community centre in, um, in Highfields in Leicester. And I was supposed to perform there, and the audience were waiting for me because I was late. Actually, I wasn't late. Somebody came and noticed at the back of the um, community centre in the car park, the police had had me, and they were searching me. And so the audience kind of came out <laughs> and liberated me from the police, you know. And as I was telling the story, all these people went, yeah, we were there, you know. Um, but it was like difficult times. I remember when the New Musical Express, do you remember that yeah. newspaper? Great. I've, I'm told it's closed down now. But um, they had this thing where, where, where they discovered new talent that was coming forward. And I can't remember what it's called. It, was, it, it had a term like, you know, NME discovered or something like that. Anyway, one year they picked me. And um, I did a gig with them. And they paid me. And this used to happen a lot then. You literally come off stage and there'd be somebody there with some money and they'd pay you in cash. You know, that'd be called light, what, no, what's the word? Laundering now, laundering money or something like that. You know, you, you can't do it anymore. Um, and um, they paid me in cash and I was like, wow, got some money from a gig, yeah. 
And then I got a record deal. And again, you know, I signed the contract. The guy went around the back room, opened the safe, gave me cash. I was like, wow, yeah. And so I went and bought myself a white BMW. I bought it on Monday. On Tuesday, Tuesday evening, I was driving from a place called Labrook Grove to East Ham in London, which is about, I'm guessing, about seven miles or something. Um, and I got stopped four times. When I got stopped the last time, I said to the officer, I said, look, officer, I'm going straight now. You know what I mean? This is money I earned, you know what I mean? And I bought a car, and I'm legal, and, and I'm born in this country. I, I don't know what else to do. I'm, I'm doing it all right now, you know what I mean? And, and I'm still getting stopped. I got stopped four times tonight. And to his credit, he said, look, I've been told tonight that my job is to stop Rastafarians in nice BMW cars. <laughs> you know? And he said, a few have come round there. He said, did you see that black one there? And there's another white one there, you know. If I don't stop them, somebody else will stop them. And he said, if I don't stop you, he said, you know, no, and nobody stops you, someone's going to question us. You know, my superior is going to ask us why we didn't stop you, you know. So, you know, th this is what we're doing, you know. And, and you, you, you've seen all those cars. And you used to, in, in, then, at night, you'd be driving and you would see cars of these black guys being stopped and searched at the side of the road. And he said, and, and look what you've done. Huh? You got a BMW, you got a bloody white one. You know what I mean? So I said, yeah, okay, yeah, all right. The next day I sold the car because, you know, I just thought, I can't live my life like this. But this is what it was like then. So this is the kind of circumstances. This is what was going on when I wrote this poem. It's called Us and Them. It's a very fast poem. There's a lot of tension in this poem. There's a lot of anger in the poem. But, you know, it represents how I was feeling then because of the way we were living. When I'm thinking about doing this poem now, I kind of have to ask myself, is it relevant now? You know? And, well, look, I wrote this poem in 1986. I want you to keep that in mind when you hear this poem. And I also want you to think about the world right now that we live in right now. Because, you know, in this world that we live in right now, one in four people live in a state of absolute poverty. 35,000 children die every day simply because they are born to poor parents. Each year, 24,000 people are killed or maimed by landmines. And you know when you hear the information rich telling you that the world is wired and getting smaller? <laughs> You must remember that as crazy as it sounds, many people in the world have never made a phone call. We live in a world where they say we communicate more, but the world stayed silent back in the day when the slave trade was making money. The world stayed silent when the Nazis started to kill trade unionists, people with disabilities, um, homosexuals, even left-handed people and then Jews. And now in the age of this global village and mass communication, the world, it's as if it's staying silent as the Palestinians are being annihilated. Countries get isolated and starve the funds. 
if they don't allow North American burgers to be sold on their high streets, or if they don't allow the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund to dominate their poor farmers. We live in a world where millions of children still die as a result of diarrhea, and uh, millions of women still spend several hours each day simply collecting water. We live in a world where millions of girls are forced into marriage before the age of 18. And in this world, right now, more than 100 million women, you can check this, more than 100 million women are just missing. These are women that for one reason or another have just disappeared. When you think about all those statistics I just said, these women are not even counted. And that's the world right now. So, I don't know, compare and contrast. This one's called Osandem. Osandem, it is Osandem. So when will this thing ever end? Osandem, it is Osandem. You must know your enemy from your friend because the enemy is near, could be in here. Don't get paranoid, just beware because the enemy is seen with a smiling face but them really come to destroy the place. Osandem, it is Osandem. So when will this thing ever end? Eh? Osandem, it is Osandem. You must know your enemy from your friend. Now me hear them I talk about unity. Them have a plan for the ethnic minority. Them say liberation totally, but them have other things as priority. Them hold a conference annually to look at the state of equality and them claim them fighting hard for me, but I want to do it independently because the us, well, well, that is anyone who suffers. Some are found in the gutter with no food to eat and us, well, well, we are clearly frustrated. We just not debated when Parliament meet and them, well, well, they are known by their fruits. They have many troops to batter you down and them, well, well, no, them have power, but there shall be a hour when the table turn round. Listen, us and them, it is us and them. Say, when will this thing ever end? Eh? Us and them, it is us and them. You must know your enemy from your friend. Yeah, know your enemy from your friend. No, face the facts. No, you can't pretend. No, it's like this poem. Some call it art. There is a struggle. See, it, it plays a part. I know people very trendy talking to me, very friendly, but they are coping, so now they're voting. All their friends in who oppress we or oh, them oppress we well will them arrest we and then they're giving we judge and jury some may start some demonstrating and but the prison cell is waiting panditelli them talk for a while with them fancy words and them plastic smile and the party politics play another trick no love for the old there is no love for the sick listen us and them it is us and them so when will this thing ever end eh? us and them it is us and them you must know your enemy from your friend and now me hear them talk about world peace, but there's war at home and the war will not cease till all the Queen's horses, women and men find a new direction and start again. Will politicians talk about world economics? But read the manifesto, it reads like a comic. When them talk about hosting, the mouth starts sprouting words that forever and forever you are doubting. But if you in doubt, eh, you don't have a shout. If you talk against them, them, them say get out. Some call it democracy, I call it hypocrisy. It, it made me start feel revolutionary. And when we start to feel this style, eh, I just stop. 
And after a while I ask, is it me class? Uh? Is it me color? Uh? Is it a thing that uh, I don't discover? Listen, us and them, it is us and them. So when will this thing uh, uh, ever end? Hey? Us and them, it is us and them. You must know your enemy from your friend, yeah. Us and them, it is us and them. And Mr. Wena will uh, this uh, thing which a conclusion. Us and them, it is us and them. Pick your place from now before the confusion. Us, eh? Said, is it us, eh? Or is it them you get it? Or is it them just check it? Just check it. Us, eh? Is it us, eh? Or is it them you get it? Or is it them just check it? I'm going to talk about a subject now that I've been talking about for years. And it used to be, when I talked about this subject, that I'll have to do a lot of explaining. But things have changed, because I don't think I have to do that now. If I say the Windrush generation, you all know what I'm talking about. But there was a time when we'd always have to explain it. Well, certainly I would. Not to everybody, of course, but to a lot of people. Um, the reason why you know about the Windrush generation now is because about seven months ago, the Guardian started writing about a group of people that were kind of leaving the country and not being allowed back in, or people who would turn up at work at places they've been working for 30, 40 years, and then the boss would say to them, sorry, you can't produce this, this paper, so I have to let you go, otherwise I'm going to get fined. Um, but like I said, the Guardian started writing about this about seven months ago. If you look at the black press, places like the Voice newspaper and then there's some other online um, news outlets, they've been writing about it for years. Almost every week, the Voice newspaper has a story of somebody that's gone to Jamaica or Trinidad, usually for the funeral, and they haven't been allowed back in the country. And this has been going on for such a long time, and it, I, I was always outraged by it. I remember, some of you may have experienced, I don't know if anybody has been to the Caribbean, but when you fly to the Caribbean, a lot of the times, if you look at the back seat of the plane, you will see people being deported, sometimes handcuffed. They usually come on late, after everybody else has come on, and they slide into the back seat, and they're handcuffed there. Um, next to immigration officers, and they're being deported. The last time I saw this, it was about five years ago, and this woman saw me and recognized me and screamed, Benjamin, please help me, please tell people about me. And she shouted this information. She said to me that um, she'd come to Britain before her first birthday from Jamaica, and she'd never been back to Jamaica and they are deporting her to Jamaica. Could you imagine, you know, being deported as an adult to a place you don't know? And so, this has been happening for a long time. Some of you may recognize the name I'm going to mention now, because um, this was a woman who was being deported in 1993 a woman called Joy Gardner. Yeah. Do you remember that story? Right, for those of you that don't, Joy Gardner was being deported in 1993, in July 1993. 
um, they, they turned up at her house to forcibly deport her. Her young son was watching cartoons on TV, and in the process, process of de deporting her, they killed her. Technically speaking, Joy Gardner wasn't Windrush, but then I think <laughs> I am Windrush. I think all of us of just a certain age are Windrush. Um, my mother was walking down a street one day in Jamaica with her sister, and they came upon a poster that said, come to Britain where the streets are paved with gold, etc., etc. Jobs are waiting for you. This is the mother country. And my mother said, you know what? I've always wanted to do nursing. I've always wanted to play my part and you know, be somebody. I think I'm going to go. And she turned around to my auntie and said, do you want to go? And my auntie said, it's too damn cold. I'm not going there, you know? <laughs> and that's the difference between me and my cousins. When I go back to Jamaica and I see my cousins who, you know, who were really struggling to survive. My mother could have had me in Jamaica and brought me over on her knee. Then, you know, who knows? I may not be here. I may be in prison now or being deported. So, in that sense, I think we're all Windrush. Anyway, the thing with Joy Gardner's story is that she was coming over on a program then that the Home Office set up where you could come if you had a partner here. So, Joy Gardner had a partner here. And in the process of her doing the applications legally, and she should, her partner left her. And this is something that used to affect a lot of women. You know, the man would hold it over you. You know, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to leave you, and then you're illegal. And that's exactly what happened to Joy Gardner. And so overnight she became illegal, and then the immigration squad came to deport her, and um, she died. So I'm going to do this poem now about this case. And the poem kind of tells the story about what happened to Joy Gardner. But there's three things I want to flag up before I do the poem. Three things that I uh, mention in the poem. The first one is yardies. I talk about yardies in the poem. Now, a yardie, back in the day, was somebody who was born in the Caribbean. We used to call it born back a yard. Born, you know, in our mother's country. As opposed to me, who was an Englishman, born in Birmingham. Um... So that's what a yardie was. But in the 80s and 90s, the police and the media, to a certain extent, kind of corrupted the word, and people thought it meant a Jamaican mafia. And so I just flagged that up. And the other thing I want to mention is the Extradition Squad. I reference an organisation called the Extradition Squad. Well, if you hear about what's going on now with Rinrush, back in the 90s, they had a thing called the Extradition Squad as part of the Home Office. And their job was to identify people that should be deported and just go and raid them like criminals and deport them. And those are the people that turned up at Joy Gardner's house on the day. And then, at the end of the poem, there's a line that says, um, whether I'm quoting an officer who's gone to court, who's got lit off, not guilty, and the television um, presenter is interviewing him and says, how do you feel? And he said, I feel a sense of absolute relief and I can go home now and play with my child. 
and it really touched me because, of course, Joy Gardner's son wasn't feeling relief. And nor were we because we were kind of thinking, who's next? You know, we don't know what's going to happen next. So I flagged those things up because this is the kind of poem where I don't want you to hear words and think, what does he mean by that? You know, I want to make it really clear. This poem is called The Death of Joy Gardner. They put a leather belt around her, 13 feet of tape and bound her, handcuffs to secure her, and only God knows what else. She's illegal, so deport her, said the empire that brought her. She died, nobody killed her, and she never killed herself. It is our job to make her return to Jamaica, said the alien deporters who deport people like me. It was said she had a warning that the officers were calling on that deadly July morning as her young son watched TV. An officer unplugged the phone. Mother and child were now alone. When all they wanted was a home, a child watched mommy die. No matter what the law may say, a mother should not die this way. Let human rights come into play and to everyone apply. I know not of a perfect race. And I know not of a perfect place. And I know this is not a simple case of yardies on the move. We must talk some race relations with the folks from immigration about this kind of deportation if things are to improve. So, let it go down in history. The word is that officially. She died democratically in 13 feet of tape. That Christian was over here because pirates were over there. The Bible sent us everywhere to make Great Britain great. Here lies the extradition squad, and we should all know prayer to God that as they go about their job, they make not one mistake. For I fear, as I walk the streets, that one day I just may meet officials who may tie my feet. And how would I escape? I see my people demonstrating, and educated folks debating about the way they are separating the elders from the youth. When all we are demanding is a little overstanding. We too have family planning. Now our children want the truth. As I move around I'm eyeing so many poets crying. And so many poets trying to articulate the grief. And I cannot help but wonder how the alien deporters, as they said to press reporters, can feel absolute relief. I now like to do a poem which is kind of more recent. Um, I normally, if I do dedicate poems, I don't that often after experiencing my sister, I uh, dedicate poems to... Um, people that I love, um, people that I respect, uh, people that I care about, um, or people that I just want to have sex with. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but I'd like to dedicate this next poem to none of the above. <laughs> I'd like to dedicate this poem to the memory of George W. Bush. Come on, you miss him. <laughs> oh, yeah. You got Trump and you're thinking, hey, it's not, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> you know, it's all relative, you know what I mean? I mean, what's happened with democracy lately? I mean, people vote for some crazy things, you know? There's a woman in my village, I say a woman, she's in a, she's a woman, she's in her early 20s. She said to me the other day, she said, you know, I, I voted for Brexit, I voted for us to leave, and I think I'm changing my mind now. And, um, and um, you know what I'm going to do? When the next election comes, I'm going to vote to remain. <laughs> and the American electorate, I mean... The American voters, I mean, we can say what we like about them, but one thing we can say about the American, or we cannot say about the American voters, we can't say they are racist. I mean, they voted for a black president, and then they voted for an orange one. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, that's, that's progress, you know? Um, but George W. Bush, I think there was something very special about him, you see. Um, I just... Um, after George W. Bush, there was Barack Obama. Um, everybody's saying Barack Obama was this great orator. And, and I, I, I don't really rate him that much. I mean, during his election campaign, he kept going, yes, we can. Yes, we can. He had the whole of America saying, yes, we can. But, hey, it was one of us. It was a great Britisher that first said, yes, we can. I want to pay respects to Bob the Builder. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's true. Bob the Builder first said, yes, we can, a long time before Barack Obama. You know, Barack Obama, he stole that shit from us, man, you know? You know and Barack Obama didn't have the turn of phrase of George W. Bush. I mean, George W. Bush said wise things. I mean, the, 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 it did. There's a website, right, called Bushisms and a book, and, and they got all the great, the great quotes from the, from the great leader, and they got the time and place, and... He said, I'm going to quote a couple now. He said one, one thing he said was like, the problem with our imports is that they all come from abroad. <laughs> you didn't think of that, did you? Eh? <laughs> uh, uh, uh. And I mean, he, you know, he's not just, you know, parochial. I mean, he's, he's an international thinker. He's a, you know, he's a world statesman. I mean, it was George W. Bush that said, the problem with the French is that they don't have a word for entrepreneur. <laughs> That be deep shit there. That be really deep shit. You know? Many years ago, they had this survey into education in America. And, you know, we have these surveys here. And um, they're always so predictable. You know, the surveys we have here, you know, about grammar schools. And, and they, always, they always have this thing about there's too many left-wing Rastafarian teachers in Ledbury. You know what I mean? You've got to get rid of them. All that kind of stuff. Well, they have similar things in the United States, and they had one one year, and one of the key findings of this survey into education in America was that if the education system carried on the way it was carrying on, by the year 2025 or something, the most spoken language in America would be Spanish. And that upset a lot of people. And that upset George W. Bush. And I heard him one day giving a speech, and he was saying, you know, Spanish is not our language. You know, our language was passed down by our forefathers. It's a great language. He didn't say it in a Birmingham Jamaican accent, you know what I mean? But you get me. He said, English 
It's our language. It's the language of the chosen people. It's the language of our forefathers. If it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. He said that. Seriously. He said that. You know, that's deep, you know. So I'd like to dedicate this poem to uh, him. And um, the poem really is about media control. It amazes me now how powerful the media is. Once upon a time, if you're going to have a coup, take over a country, you'd go and get the queen or the king or the emperor or the prime minister, and you would kind of string them up in the town centre, in the town square or something like that, just to show the people that you've arrived and these people don't exist anymore. But now, one of the first things that people do is they take over the radio station and the TV station. And sometimes you see big battles for the radio station and the TV station. Why? Because they know that once they have control of the media, they have control of the majority of the people. And I just see this happening in a way that really worries me. You know, this, the way that people believe what they're told in the media. And I've had media telling lies about me, people believing it, you know, and it, it just amazes me. So that's the thinking behind this next poem. It's called The Wrong Radio Station. My ears are battered and burned, and I have just learned that I have been listening to the wrong radio station. My mind has been brutalized, now the pain can't be disguised. I've been listening to the wrong radio station. I was beginning to believe that all black men were bad men and white men would reign again. I was beginning to believe that I was a mindless drug freak that couldn't control my sanity or my sexuality. I was beginning to believe that I couldn't believe in nothing except nothing. And all I ever wanted to do was to get you and to do you. I've been listening to the wrong radio station. My future has been blighted. I was so short-sighted. I've been listening to the wrong radio station. I was beginning to not trust me. In fact, I wanted to arrest me. I've been listening to the wrong radio station. I've been dancing to music that I can't stand. I've been reciting commercials to my girlfriends. I've been trying to convince myself that what I really need is a sunbed. <laughs> and a mortgage. And some hairspray, the kind of hairspray that will wash my grey blues away. I've been trying to convince myself that I could ease my conscience if I gave a few pence or a few cents to a starving baby in Africa. Because African babies need my favours. Because Africa is full of dictators. And oh yeah, globalisation will bring salvation. I've been listening to the wrong radio station. I thought my neighbours formed an axis of evil. I want to go kill people. I've been listening to the wrong radio station. I was sure I didn't inhale. So why is my mind going stale? I've been listening to the wrong radio station. I was beginning to believe that all Muslims are terrorists and Christian terrorists didn't exist. I really did believe that terrorism couldn't be done by governments, not our governments, not white governments. I just could not see what was wrong with me. I gave hungry people hamburgers, you see. I was beginning to believe that our children were better than their children. Their children were dying from terrorism, but I couldn't hear their children call and a child from Palestine simply didn't count at all. What despair. No children. I was not aware. I've been listening to the wrong radio station. For years I've been sedated and now I think I'm educated. 
I've been listening to the wrong radio station. And every time I got ill, I took the same little white pill. I've been listening to the wrong radio station. When it started, I was curious, but then it got so serious. It was cool when it began, but no, I really hate Iran. And look at me now. I want to make friends with Pakistan. I want to bomb Afghanistan. And I need someone to tell me, where the hell is Kurdistan? Yeah, you can be my ally for a while until I come to bum your child. And I'm sure there's a continent called the Middle East, and I think I can bum my way to peace. I've been listening to the wrong radio station. I'm listening to the wrong jams. I'm listening to the wrong beats. I've been listening to the wrong radio station. I've been listening to the wrong tones from the wrong zones. I've been listening to the wrong radio station. I've been listening to the wrong voices. I made such mad choices. I've been listening to the wrong radio station. I've been listening to lies. I've been listening to spies. I've been listening to the wrong radio station. I needed to know what some pop star somewhere was having for breakfast. I needed to know that I was no longer working class. I needed to know if the stock market rose 1%. I needed to know that I had a ruler to give me confidence. I needed to know that my life would improve loads if I had an operation on my nose. I needed to hear that DJ say, good morning, good morning. I thought that he was there just for me. I loved the way that he would say, this show was sponsored by, oh my, oh my, he made me cry. I've been listening to the wrong radio station. Can you dig this? I put myself on a hit list. I've been listening to the wrong radio station. I'm laughing and I'm crying as I'm watching myself dying. I've been listening to the wrong radio station. Listen to him. Can you hear? Listen to her. Can you hear? Listen to it. Can you hear? Listen to me. Keep this frequency clear. Tune in. Drop out. Okay, I'm going to do two more and then I'm going to stop and take some questions. Uh, this is a poem I wrote years and years ago. Um, and um, I'd like to, let me just check first. Uh, I want to hear it from all the vegans in the audience. <laughs> oh no, come on, Ledbury, you can do better than that. Um, uh, all the vegans in the audience, make some noise. Vegetarians? Yay! You can be cured. <laughs> you can take that step one further and join my two friends here. You don't need cheese. You can do without that egg on toast. Trust me. They're two vegans, right. Well, it's, 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 that's, that's not bad, really. I mean, um, I now live in Lincolnshire. Anybody here from Lincolnshire? People in Lincolnshire don't get out much. Um, there's a place in Lincolnshire called Louth. Do you know it? <laughs> Somebody say posh. Nice windmill. Yeah. Um, it's got a nice library too. I was, I was performing in the library one day and it was summer. And it was hot. It was heaving. And um, 
And it was so... F- I remember it was a great gig, a great audience. I mean, a really wonderful... Not as good as you, like, but, you know, <laughs> a great audience. And I was doing my stuff, and it was great. It was going well. And I come to do this poem, which is about being vegan, kind of. And I say, you know, are there any vegans in the audience? And it was like, silent. <laughs> and I thought, maybe they misheard me. I mean, I miss... I've got this thing, there's loads of words that I miss here, and I go around saying them incorrectly for years. Um, for years, for example, I thought that people got married in holy mattress money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did, you know what I mean? You mishear it, and then you keep hearing it like that, you know what I mean? Um, so I thought they misheard me, so I thought it, maybe they think I said there are any Vulcans in the audience. So I thought, are there any vegans in the audience? And it was just like, quiet. And after the third time, a bloke got up at the back and he put his hand up and he went, there was one, but we ate him. (laughs) And I'm I'm thinking, these people look hungry. (laughs) You know what I mean? And and when you're on stage in that kind of venue, you can can always see the the, the fire exits. I'm looking at the fire exits and I'm thinking, if any of these audience members come towards me, I'm making a run for it because these people look hungry. Uh, Many years later, I was in a city, well, the only city in Lincolnshire, it's called Lincoln, of course. And um, I was in the only vegan restaurant in the whole of Lincolnshire. And I was sitting there and there was this uh, wonderful lady a couple of tables away. And she said you know, when you was in Lauf and you did that thing about vegans and that guy said, you know, there was one, but we ate him. She said, I was there. I was there. And I said to her, I said, are you a vegan? And she said, yeah. I said, if you were a vegan, why didn't you stand up and show solidarity? She said, oh, at the time I wasn't a vegan, but I'm a vegan now. I went, oh, okay, I understand. So now there's one vegan in Lauf. (laughs) And she went, no, I had to get out. (laughs) (laughs) I think they eat vegans there, <laughs> seriously, I, I do. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's, um, I was doing this poem, it's, um, it's just a load of food really. Um, but I kind of think it represents multicultural Britain, because people say, you know, all this food, where does it come from? And it comes from the average high street in most cities. It's called Vegan Delight, and like I said, it's just a load of food. It's... Um, Akis, chapatis, dumpling and naan, chana and rotis, onion and tapan, masala, dosa, green kalaloo, bell and samosa, corn and aloo, yam and gassava, pepper pot stew, rotwill and guava, rice and tofu, puri, parata, sesame, casserole, brown eggless pasta and brown bread rolls, soya milk muesli, soya bean curd, soya sweet sweeties, soya is the word, soya bean margarine, soya bean sauce, what can make medicine? Soya, of course. Soya mixed yogurt, soya ice cream, or soya sorbet, soya rhyme supreme, soya sticks, licorice, soya salad, Chinese soya is soya is bad. Plantain and tabbouleh, cornmeal pudding, onion barjuit, plenty come in, breadfruit and coconut, molasses tea, dairy-free omelettes, very chilly, gingerbread, not roast, sorrel, papaw, cocoa and rye bread, I take them on tour. Drinking cool marby makes me feel sweet. Uh, what was that question now? What do we eat? Um... It's really weird, because I don't really consider myself a political person. Um, it sounds strange, because, you know, there's all these things that I write about and all these campaigns I'm, in, I'm involved in. And um, The reason is because I just feel I'm a human being that just wants to sh- help shape my community, that cares about things. And so we should all be activists, you know? 
Um, and so people do come to me sometimes and they say, why don't you get involved in politics in a more formal way? And I say, no, because I've just seen what it's done to some of the people that I know. I remember when Nelson Mandela came out of prison and the first democratically elected government in South Africa um, was put in place. I, I remember seeing a photograph of them and looking at them and I knew like two thirds of them. Most of them had been in exile in Islington in London, you know? Um, and so Dali Tambo, the son of um, Oliver Tambo, he used to organise poetry readings. He organised cultural events for the ANC all over Britain. Um, so I knew him quite well. He went back and he took over what the kind of South African version of the BBC, the South African Broadcasting Corporation. Um, Mandalanga, a dear friend of mine, a poet and a novelist, um, he went back to South Africa, became Minister of Culture. And then he went from Minister of Culture to um, Sports Minister. And then slowly he went from one job to another and eventually he ended up as the Minister for Censorship. You know, he went from, the minister, he, he, from a novelist, from the Minister of Culture to Censorship. So I've seen how power can corrupt and drag you down. I remember looking at the first, well, not the first, but when Blair was elected, that government, and thinking I know half of them as well. Most of them were from Islington too. Um, and slowly, I saw what happened to them. Well, actually, quite quickly, I saw what happened to them. You know, Quite quickly, we went to war. And so I don't really want to get involved in that kind of politics. So I'm happy to kind of do what I do. But um, if, if I was really forced to be a politician, if that could ever happen... I would be Minister of Education, right? And I would, I would make it mandatory, one of the first things I'd do, I'd make it mandatory that, that children, at, at least once in their education, the British child must go and experience another culture, right? And I'm not talking about going to France or Germany or something like that. They must go somewhere where the culture's really different, where they eat differently, where they sleep differently, where they go to the toilet differently. And somewhere where, because I'm keen on being a traveller and not a tourist, somewhere where they can make friends, some kind of cultural exchange, somewhere where they could connect with local kids. I've got this theory, and I know it's not scientific and it may sound simplistic, but I think it could work. I just think that if you get children to make friends in a country and make real genuine friends and keep in touch with those friends, when they grow up to be adults, they're less likely to go and want to bomb their friends. You know what I mean? It's just a theory of mine. I've, and I said this once on a TV program, and um, a politician who was sitting across from me said, uh, Benjamin, that's all very good, but isn't that rather expensive? Well, at the time, we were involved in a war, and I remember seeing a, a TV programme where they were doing costing the war, and there was all these statistics. I'm not very good at keeping statistics in my head, but there was this one statistic I remember that said that every cruise missile that we sent was over a million pounds. And I thought, that's expensive. You know, I mean, I'd rather invest in peace than invest in war, and that's it for me. So... Um, I think that travelling is a one way, certainly for me, that you can really open your mind. Like I said, I left school at 13, and um, I was obsessed with going to places, especially places that got, my government told me I shouldn't go. You know what I mean? So in the 80s, I went to Russia. 
Um, and um, I used to travel around the Middle East quite a lot. A few years ago, I went to North Korea. And North Korea, is, I found, one of the most fascinating countries that I've ever been in. And I came away saying, thinking, I just wish, wish everybody could go and really see what North Korea is like. It is, no doubt about it, a totalitarian state. But when the British, well, the Western media report on North Korea, they really simplify it, you know. Um, for one thing, they always say the, the communist regime in North Korea. I mean, everybody I met in North Korea, I met politicians and I met, you know, everyday people, don't like communists. Don't like communists. They've created their own system that has a special name. You can Google this. Um, it's called the Juche system. And it's a kind of mixture of Confucianism and idol worship, you know. Um, but the Western media finds this too hard to explain. So they just say communist, you know. So, you know, I like to go there and, and, and see this stuff for myself. And when I was in North Korea, I really learned so much about why North Korea is the way it is. And I just thought, this is just not in the public domain in Britain. And I was really lucky because my guide in North Korea was the daughter of the man who was in charge of the nuclear program. You know, so I had like really good, um, honest information. She was really honest with me. So traveling, I just think, you know, it's, it's the thing that, I'm not sure if I could call myself educated, but I am a professor now, I guess. But, um, <laughs> but um, traveling really helped it for me. And I'm going to do a poem now, which I wrote whilst on my travels, although it's, you know, it's not on a heavy subject in North Korea or anything like that. Um, it's just when I was traveling in India, an experience I had. Um, anybody here been to India? Yeah, did you find yourself? <laughs> um, no. Uh, I, do you know what a sadhu is? Anybody who's been to India? Oh, sadhu, it's an Indian holy man. Yeah? Well, they've got women as well. And some of them have like really long dreadlocks, you know. I've got a picture in my office which is like the longest hair in the world, and it's a sadhu. And his hair is like 40 feet long or something, you know. Have you seen it? You're not, yeah, it's amazing. Um, sometimes you see sadhus walking down the road with dreadlocks in their carrier bags. You know? <laughs> and they do crazy things, like they stand on one leg. I saw one that's standing on one leg for 15 years. I saw another one, he had a massive weight, like a big ball hanging from his penis. He'd been hanging there for 15 years. Imagine that, man. <laughs> well, women can, you know, can imagine it as well if you want to. A ball hanging from your penis for 15 years. I tried it for 15 minutes and started no research. Um, and it just wasn't working for me. But, but they do this stuff to show their concentration to, um, to God. Right? The sadhu, uh, they, they, they have this thing. I mean, every poet and writer has favorite words. The sadhu, one of the sadhu words of importance is a word I love to say. I've never used it in poetry, but it's aprarigraha. I just love saying it. Aprarigraha. It means non-possessiveness. You see, the idea is that if you don't have lots of material things, it's easier to meditate. You're not attached to them. If I said to you now, let's close our eyes and meditate, think of a tree, empty your mind, you're going to go... Did I turn the gas off? 
did we buy those tickets for John Cooper Clark? <laughs> you know, you got all this stuff coming into your head. But if you haven't got lots of possessions, it's much easier to meditate. So that's why the sadhus don't have possessions. If you see them and you want to give them food, if they're not going to eat it more or less straight away, they won't have it. Because if they have to store it, they've got to think about where to store it, then they've got to worry about the food and all that stuff. So, you know, they believe in a really simple existence. Anyway, I'm, I'm in India, and I'm in a place called... Um, it's North India, so Punjab. And I'm leaving a place called Amritsar, and I'm going to another place called Jalandor. And I see this guy, and he's jumping up and down, and he looks so pleased to see me. And I go up to him, and I say, What's happening, bruv? And he says... You are a sadhu. So I said, no, 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 no. He said, yeah, you are African sadhu. I said, no, no, no. He's a Rasta man from Birmingham. <laughs> yeah. And um, he insisted, because he really believed I was a sadhu, and he insisted on taking me to go and meet his friend who is a sadhu. So I go and see his friend, and his friend is sitting there, like, naked. And he's sitting there like that in the lotus position. And um, he's got ashes from a funeral pyre all over him. And he's sitting there naked and he's got like a pile of dreadlocks there. And he's got a pile of dreadlocks there. And in the middle he's got a pile of stuff. I know you don't have it in Ledbury. It's called ganja. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got this stuff there. You can Google ganja if you want to know what it's about. <laughs> and um, and uh, he's there. And he's sitting there naked. And he's telling me about the way of the sadhu. He's telling me that the sadhu believes in aparigraha and meditating con constantly. And the sadhu does all these crazy things to show that he can, he can overcome pain and go to a higher level of meditation. That's why they stand on one leg and hang things off their body and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, this is special. The way of the sadhu is really special. He tells me that Indian people are just so busy doing what they do, they don't have time to meditate. So he meditates for the people. And I'm thinking, wow, this is beautiful. I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to take my clothes off and get naked with the brother. I'm going to hang out here. I'm thinking, you know, okay, I've been to Ledbury before. They don't need me this time. They can get, they can get Linton Crazy Johnson, you know what I mean? I, I want to hang out with this brother. And it's one of those moments, it's like picture postcard India. The sadhu is there like that. The sun is coming down behind his head. And it feels like, I feel like enlightenment is just about to touch me. And as I feel the hand of enlightenment hovering above me, his mobile phone rings. <laughs> so he pulls out this mobile phone from around his bottom and I say, you can't do that. Offer a regraha. He says, hey man, I got a girlfriend in Mumbai, got to keep in touch. <laughs> So he inspired me to write this poem. It's called uh, Meditate and Communicate. <laughs> a sadhu, like a lotus, sits on India, waiting for the truth to take him home. And India is busy, getting busier, trying to repay its World Bank loan. The sadhu takes his ganja, like a Rastaman. He blesses it and burns it for the nation. And as the smoke arrives in central Pakistan, the sadhu talks to God in meditation.
One day they say the gods will return to India and all our mixed up lies will fall into place. But first the gods must deal with Bombay's mafia and the mafia control a lot of spears. A sadhu like a lotus sits on India waiting for the truth to take him home. He's a pure and dedicated meditator. He's just meditating on his mobile phone. <laughs> um, I've lost track of time, but I think we've got time for a couple of questions and a couple of microphones hanging around. Um, I've been told yes by the boss. Um, so yeah, I'm delighted to come up as well. Um, Mike, uh, any questions? Or did you just know everything about me you need to know? <laughs> Why are you so quiet? How much time do you actually spend writing poetry these days? Oh, that's a very difficult question. And um, um, I've got to tell you that very little, to be honest. Um, which is a real shame. You know, when, when young people come to me, or anybody comes to me, especially if they haven't been published yet and they haven't established a name for themselves, and they say, I'm really interested in doing poetry, and they ask me advice and all that stuff, one of the first things I tell them, I say, really enjoy this time. Walking in the park, just seeing a sunset, falling in and out of love or whatever it is, going on your political demonstrations and your campaigning and write about all that stuff. Because when I was young and doing a lot of that stuff, um, I spent 90% of my time being creative, not just poetry, plays and anything else, and probably 10% in my office, administering myself, writing letters, uh, replying to fan mail and um, organizing flights to one place or another. Um, now, I think 90% of my time is spent either in my office or with my students and probably just 10% being creative. It's, it's really sad, but that's the reality of it. Um, and so, you know, it's a real struggle. It's something that it's, it really frustrates me. I talk to people about it all the time. I remember once it was really sending me crazy and I, 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 I rang Roger McGough. And um, I said to him, Roger, because there was a radio program on the television, on the radio, and um, it, it was about poets on trains. Because a lot of poets go to the gigs by train. And um, it, 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 some quirky person in Radio 4 thought of this as a program. But Roger McGough was on the program. And I remember doing gigs with Roger McGough many times, and he would say, this is a poem I wrote on the train while I was coming here. And I thought, oh, I don't do that anymore. I race around in my car to get from one venue to another. And he loves that time when you just sit down and just write on a train. And I never do it. I had to write a poem once about being on a train for a TV program. And I had to, like, just invent a journey for myself. I said, all right, I'll get on a train and I'll go from Birmingham to Manchester and, and get back. Because I hardly ever use a train, unfortunately. I race around in a car. So sometimes I have to force myself to do 
to find time to be creative. My last, apart from the last novel, but the four novels before that are all about life in the East End of London. They're for teenagers. But all of them, most of them, uh, most of the contents I wrote while I was in China. <laughs> That's where I have to go <laughs> to, to find time to write. And my publishers, my agents usually know that when I go to China, you can't contact me. And, and that's, I think it's a little bit sad, you know, because there's stuff, you know, I can't even bloody get arrested now. <laughs> you know, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's just like, um, so yeah. yeah. So if you want to try walking around with a ball on your feet. <laughs> <laughs> I tried that, but I couldn't even leave the bloody house, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't get out the front door. <laughs> oh, we've only got time for one more, so it's, it's got to be a good one. I think a lot of people are choosing to be vegan now because people are learning the truth about the way that food is produced. And, um, and also, um, that being vegan, I mean, when I went vegan, it's because I loved animals. I told you that story about when I was a kid in the playground and what it was like at that school that was really difficult. I remember being in that... Um, I say, I've always said that, for me, one of the most beautiful sounds is being... is, is like when you hear that, that kind of noise you hear when you listen to the playground of a primary school. Not so much a secondary school, you know, a primary school, and it's just kids playing, and it's just, it's just beautiful. But one of the worst places to be in the world is in that playground where nobody wants to talk to you. And I was there, and one day a cat came along. And I started hanging out with this cat. He was a cool cat, you know, and he was a mixed race, black and white, you know what I mean? <laughs> and um, I talked to this cat, and we got on, and he came back the next day, and we hung out together. And after a few days, he brought his friends. And I just, I just started to love animals, you know? And, I've had this really special relationship with animals ever since, and I've, one of the things I've noticed with animals, I mean, they kill for self-defense and for territory and stuff like that to survive and all that kind of stuff, but I've never seen a, a group of animals organize, uh, start an organization like the BMP or anything like that, you know I mean? They just... And so I got really close with animals, so one day I told my mum that I wasn't going to eat my friends anymore, and I became a vegan. Now, some people go vegan because of the love of animals. But now people are also realising the environmental benefits of being vegan. You know, I, I, I'm not going to... And it's not my area of expertise, but the environmental benefits and the, the, the health benefits to yourself um, of, of being vegan, as well as, you know, obviously, these animals are not being killed. So I think that more people are realising that. And there's also something that I used to be very passionate about. Sorry, I'm going on a bit, but I've got to answer this question as best as I can. A long time ago, I used to go to um, vegan conferences and fairs and stuff like that. And I'll be honest, right? I mean, I was the only black person in there. I'd walk in, and, um, and it wasn't just about being the only black person in there. All the white people in there were just like aging hippies, right? And you go there and you say, okay... And, you know, there's nothing wrong with these people, but that was the scene. I went to the vegan fair in um, Earth Court the other day. I was amazed. You know, there's 
vegans from all over the world, Muslim vegans, Chinese vegans. And there's this word now, I can't pronounce it, intersexualism. Intersexualism, is that the right word? Does anybody? Intersectionality. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've been going on about that for a long time, you know, um, the way that veganism can connect with lots of other struggles. And it's always frustrated me, the amount of people in the animal rights movement that weren't that concerned with the human rights movement and people in the human rights movement that weren't concerned with the animal rights movement. I think now people are learning to put them all together and that they're all connected in one way or another. So I think that's what's happening right now. And just generally speaking, vegans are just a lot more sexy. <laughs> no offence. You know what I mean? I'm being kicked off the stage. Can I do one more poem? One more. And then I've got to go and sign books. And then I've got to go I couldn't really come here and um, perform for you and, um, and um, without just, just, just telling you to be nice to your turkeys this Christmas. <laughs> because turkeys just want to have fun. Turkeys are cool and turkeys are wicked and every turkey has a mum. <laughs> be nice to your turkeys this Christmas. Don't eat it. Keep it alive. It could be your mates and not on your plate. Say, yo, turkey man, I'm on your side. <laughs> I've got lots of friends who are turkeys. And all of them fear Christmas time. They say, Benjamin, hey, Benjamin, shut up. <laughs> I want to enjoy it, man. It's a Jamaican turkey. <laughs> <laughs> but those humans have destroyed it, man. And those humans are out of their mind. Yes, I've got lots of friends who are turkeys and all have the right to a life not to be caged up and genetically made up by a farmer and his wife. No, turkeys just want to play reggae. Turkeys just want to hip-hop. Have you ever seen a nice young turkey saying, hey man, I cannot wait for the chop? No, turkeys would like to get presents. Turkeys want to watch Christmas TV. Turkeys have brains and turkeys feel pain in many ways like you and me. I once knew a turkey. His name was Turkey. He said, Benji, explain to me, please. Who put the turkey in Christmas? And what happens to Christmas trees? I said, I'm not too sure, Turkey. But it's got nothing to do with Christ. Mass. No, humans get greedy and waste more than need be. And businessmen make lots of cash. So, Ledbury... Be nice to your turkeys this Christmas. Invite them indoors for some greens. Let them eat cake. And let them partake in a plate of organic grown beans. <laughs> Be nice to your turkeys this Christmas. And spare them the cut of the knife. Join Turkeys United. And they'll be delighted. And you'll make new friends for life. Good night. Thank you very much.